Good morning. Our scripture reading is going to be Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. In your pew Bible, you'll find that on page 944. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is the word of God. Well, it is a real blessing and privilege for my wife Marlene and I to be here, especially at this time of year. We were able to get in, get through Buffalo um, on Wednesday, and we've been here since Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we have to head back today. The man who was our pastor when we were first married um, is very close to dying, and I've been asked a number of years ago if I would do his funeral. I actually was hoping he would do mine, but it looks like um, the Lord's going to call him soon. But we're very, very glad that we can be here and worship with you. I want to thank um, those who helped us worship this morning. We have a wonderful God and a wonderful gospel. Now, would you take your Bible again and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. And it's always good to read the word of God, so I will just read it again in our hearing, and then we will seek the face of God again. The Apostle Paul is writing this great book, and at verse 18, he's been doing some comparative shopping. And he says, For I, Paul, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Again, let's bow our heads and our hearts and seek the favor and the blessing of our Savior. Father, it's been good to be here. And as we were reminded in the prayer a few minutes ago, we're part of a vast family. And some of us enjoy many temporary and temporal blessings and others know opposition and persecution. There are believers who are worshiping you in solitary confinement today, and they have been there many years because they love Jesus, and others that gather in the thousands to unite their hearts and their voices 
as they exalt and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the great mosaic of your people. We thank you for um, getting living stones out of the nations of the world and building them into a temple that is worthy of the Lord. And we thank you that in your kindness, many of us here this morning are part of what you are doing. We thank you that what you're doing is not only temporal, but eternal. And we thank you that your grace is able to come to dead sinners and give them eternal life. And we are amazed, we wonder, we're astounded, we worship. And when we are perfectly whole and perfectly holy, we will worship you forever and ever. We will give you a standing ovation for all that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have done for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for having it written. We thank you for preserving it down to the present time. We thank you that it is translated into our language so that we might be able to read it and understand it. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of your spirit. And we pray the one who caused it to be written will cause it to be understood. And we pray that each of us would hear with ears of faith and we would not just intellectually take in more information, but oh, we would mix your word with faith and it would govern, it would control, it would direct and dictate the impulses of our heart and the decisions of our will. May you bless us now and be kind to us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. We find ourselves this morning in one of the great, great chapters of the book of Romans. You could almost say in the book of Romans, every chapter is great. Uh, not only is this a great chapter, Romans 8, in the book of Romans, but it is a great chapter in the entire Bible. Paul hasn't yet met the believers when he wrote this letter at Rome. He will one day. Uh, the government will pay for him to come to Rome, and uh, he will come as a prisoner. But before he comes, he writes this marvelous, marvelous letter, actually doing a number of things, but one of them is seeking their support for his missionary endeavors. He hopes eventually to get as far west to what will eventually be the nation of Spain. And of course, you just don't support any and every missionary. You want to know what do they really believe? What is the gospel that they will take uh, to their field of ministry? And so what Paul does in this marvelous book is lay out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a book of good news, but before there's really good news, there has to be bad news. And for three chapters, Paul will lay out the bad news. And it's not only bad news about the first century A.D., but it's bad news about the 21st century A.D. It's not only bad news with regards to the great Roman Empire, but it's bad news for the great United States of America and the even greater country to the north, Canada. It's bad news for every person in this room every person in this country, every person, and I heard we just hit eight billion. 
And what we do have in common is the bad news, that there is no person on this planet who is right with God. There is no person who in and of themselves, with their thoughts, with their desires, with their actions and reactions, who pleases God. Everything is tainted with the poison of sin, and uh, their best efforts fall far short of the holy standard of God, first revealed in his word and his law, and then perfectly revealed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for three chapters, Paul says, this is bad. If you think COVID is bad, or if you think this epidemic is bad, or that pandemic is bad, there is nothing like the scourge of sin. And the mortality rate is 100%. There's no cure. Uh, there's no pharmacy that is able to come up with something that can counteract this. And the problem is that every person not only is a sinner, but was born a sinner. And we might think initially that's kind of unfair, but the truth is we've ratified the decision of Adam millions of times in our own lives. And so Paul tells them that he's going out into a world to tell bad news. Now, there's lots of philosophies and even religions that have bad news. But the good news about the book of Romans is that there is good news. And starting in the middle of Romans chapter 3, the apostle begins to say something that's absolutely astounding. That what God requires from us as sinners, he provides for us as sinners. And he doesn't provide it through religious activity. He doesn't provide it through sheep and bulls and goats and priests and all these holy things. God provides the only remedy for sin in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is very God will be embedded in a teenage girl's womb. And he will be conceived of the Holy Spirit he will develop over nine months. He will be born as a helpless infant. And he will live astoundingly for 30-something years without ever sinning. And the provocations are many. The temptations are literally out of this world. And yet he will never sin. Now, he did not do that for himself. He, he did that for sinners like you and I. Because you see, to be right with God, I need to have godlike righteousness and the only one that can provide godlike righteousness is god himself and jesus was everything i should have been as a two-year-old as a teenager as a 20-something and now in my 70s and not only did he live a perfect life for a sinner like me and a sinner like you but then he laid down that perfect life as this perfect sacrificial lamb. And one act of one sacrifice in 30-something AD is sufficient to save all who come down through history. And that's the good news, that I don't have to get better. I don't have to do things to earn God's favor. 
I come with my hands up. God wants to frisk me. He wants to pat me down. He wants to see if I'm trusting in any righteousness of my own to have any standing with him. And I come and I receive what he first gave me, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time we gather to worship, all we have to offer to Jesus or offer to God is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the perfecter of our praise. He's the one who sanctifies our uh, singing. He is the one who enables us day after day and moment by moment to be able to have a perfect fellowship with a God who is unspeakably holy. Even holy angels shield themselves from the glory of the God who has made them. He works through the gospel. This is not only a gospel that that pardons and cleanses all our sin and buries it in the deepest sea, but this is a, a, a gospel that sets the captive free. And this is a gospel that because of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power, the bondage of sin is broken. And sinners like you and I have been made free not to do our own thing and be our own person, but free now to be servants of righteousness. And so Paul works through this gospel, and what a glorious thing to be told in the midst of a great Roman Empire that there is freedom and salvation only in Jesus Christ. Now we come to the eighth chapter, and the problem is that you would think with the gospel this wonderful that if things go better with Coca-Cola, I was going to say Coke, but that may not be the right thing to say. If things go better with Coca-Cola, they should really go better with Jesus. Uh, we've been blessed with four children. We did everything in our power to keep them safe, to protect them. And you would think, now that I belong to Jesus, and I remember singing the song before I was saved, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And then I got saved at 17, and you know what? The song aren't, isn't quite true. Every day isn't sweeter, is it? In fact, the truth is, I never had real problems, at least that I was aware of, till I was saved. And you would think that a God who has gone to all that trouble to save his people would keep them, in that sense, protected in safe spaces and all of that. But he does the very opposite. Uh, as Paul will say in the latter part of this chapter, we're all like lambs, sheep, sent to the slaughter. It doesn't even make sense, does it? Unless you're God. Unless you have a gospel that must be believed by faith. It must be lived out by faith. Now, the question is, how can I have assurance that I'll make it? I, I know my own heart. I, I know the hymn is true, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the Lord I love. I've been saved 56 years, and I've been kept by grace. How do I know we're going to make it? Have we been sent on a fool's errand? Have, have, have we just been sucked into kind of a psychological thing that it's like a child in the night and it's storming outside and they're hugging, they're stuffy, 
and they're going to be okay because their Mickey Mouse nightlight is on. And is that all Jesus is? And, and the Bible says, not even close, that the gospel that he brings is a cosmic gospel. It is a gospel that is out of this world, but it is a gospel that comes into this world. And when Jesus is done, when the dust is settled, it's going to blow our minds. We will need glorified bodies. We will need perfectly holy souls to be able to take in the wonder. We made the pilgrimage once to Disneyland. And frankly, after about the first day, I was fine. In fact, I would say, except for our Sunday school class about anger this morning, I was kind of fed up with the whole thing. And, and the novelty wears off very quickly, but glory won't be that. When we've been there 10,000 years, we won't be looking at our watch and saying, well, this has been neat, but is there more to this? We're going to say, we've just begun. We've just begun. Now, chapter 8 of Romans is designed to give assurance. And not all four-letter words are bad. One of the good ones is the word sure, S-U-R-E. And what Paul does in this magnificent chapter is give theological, biblical, doctrinal truth after truth after truth of why we are assured of our salvation. Uh, verse 1, a doctrine called justification. We have been declared righteous in the sight of God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That alone should make me sure. That alone should encourage me to press on and persevere. But he says, we've also been given the Holy Spirit, and he indwells within us. And, and he, he makes us less and less like we used to be, and more and more like Jesus. Uh, we haven't seen our grandkids for a while, and you notice right away, they've grown. They're either going up, and of course they notice that you're growing, but in another way. But uh, the astounding thing is, when you look around at the people of God, you say, I, I used to know her when. And I've seen how trials temper her. I see how suffering and sickness and difficulty and disappointment, I see how those things have made him less and less like himself and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and God in his great wisdom is bringing to the life of believer trials and difficulties and as Paul says in verse 18, sufferings. This hurts. This is painful. Both to prove our faith, is it the real McCoy or not, and to improve our faith. The faith that I was saved with is not the same faith I have today. It's grown. It's matured. Oh, it's, it hasn't just charted perfectly. It's up and down and things like that. But it's a different kind of faith. It is matured. It's a faith that less and less is thrown by circumstances and situations. And it's a faith that has been settling more and more on who God is and what he's revealed himself to be. Like I say, we could go through this entire chapter and we would see reason after reason why we should be sure of our salvation. 
why we should persevere and press on and not pack it in. But I want to show us one today that maybe we haven't talked about or at least thought about recently. And what's interesting is it, it's an issue that amazingly our world is interested in. And it talks about it all, all the time. Now, what we want to talk about today is what is called the creation. Did you notice that? In verse 19, for the creation. Now, we need to understand here that when Paul talks about the creation, he's talking about everything that God has made minus the people. He's talking about this globe, this planet, this, uh, this thing called earth. God brought it into being. He merely spoke it into being. And we live in this thing called creation. It, it's a vital part of our very existence, isn't it? And what we want to do this morning is look at the creation from four perspectives. I'm going to lay them out ahead of time so that if you daydream and you come to somewhere during the sermon, you should know where you are. And if I somehow wander off the path, you, you'll at least know where I should have been if I'm not there. Now, as we look at the creation this morning, we want to see it in the light of four things. The present, the past, the future, the present. First of all, then, the present. Now, remember, in verse 18, Paul has been doing comparative shopping. You don't have to raise your hands, but if, if you're a Proverbs 31 wife, you're, you're a comparative shopper, aren't you? Yeah. And Paul says, you know, I, I've, I've done all the thinking, I've done all the calculating, brought in the best CEOs, the, great, the best guys in finance and everything else, and it's my considered opinion that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is coming. Not even close. When we look back, when we're in eternity, this will just be a blip on the screen. We'll, we'll vaguely sort of kind of remember it. And Paul says, even when you get th going through it, you, you need to be doing this comparative shopping. And we must remember that what sustains the believer, what keeps her pressing on and persevering, is glory, the glory to come. Because, as we will see, it's the very thing that sustains the creation itself. Now, the present. As Paul is going to work us through these three or four verses, he's going to use a literary device called personification. When I was a kid, I got up every Saturday morning, went into the family room, turned on, there was no remote, actually had to go and turn the dial, turn on our black and white TV to watch personification. I don't know if you've ever done that. Now, what is personification? Well, personification is giving to non-human things human-like 
qualities and characteristics. When, when I was a kid, I mean, I wasn't the brightest kid, but not even I would have watched a stupid mouse, you know, running around for a half hour on a black and white TV. So they put this guy up on his hind legs, they gave him a name, they gave him a squeaky voice, they gave him a goofy girlfriend, or, I mean, they gave him a goofy friend, they gave him a girlfriend, they, and his Mickey and Minnie and Pluto and Donald and Goofy and all these stuff, and they kept me amused for hours. And then I went to college. And then I had kids. And, you know, Thomas the Train and Lightning McQuaid and the Wily Coyote and all, all and, and, well, personification is everywhere, isn't it? Now, of course, it's a literary device, and why is it used? Because if you make a non-thing kind of human, then we as humans should be able to relate and understand and get it. If, if Paul just said, you know, there are 23 scientific principles that are working together to explain what's going on on planet Earth, already Day's eyes are glazing over, he has no idea what I'm talking about, I'll lose the rest of you as we go on. But what does Paul say right now in the present? In verse 19, he says, for the creation, and he's using one Greek word that takes a few English words, the creation waits with eager longing for. Do you know what the creation is doing right now? Now, we won't hear this from any other place but the Bible. That waits for eager, with eager longing is a very interesting word, and I can relate to it because I'm kind of vertically challenged. And, and it's the idea that you're kind of at the New York airport in the uh, arrival section, Kennedy Airport, and, and, and the planes are coming in, and you're going there to meet someone, maybe your parents or someone coming for Thanksgiving or Christmas, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're standing up on your tiptoes, you're craning your neck, you're, you're trying to look through other shoulders and heads and things like that to see if you can spot your parents. And the Bible says that right now this planet, this planet is standing on its tiptoes Remember, it's personification because a round ball doesn't have tiptoes. And it's craning its neck. A round ball doesn't have a neck. But you and I do have toes and necks. And we, it's standing on its tiptoes and it's looking for something. It, it, it's a lot like a child and dad has gone away on a business trip. And... and you know, it's hard for them to know exactly when Thursday is and what are five days from now and things like that. Every time there's a knock at the door, they run to the door to see, is he home? Every time kind of the headlights come into the driveway and they're just coming in to turn around and go back out again, but is a dad, is a dad. Every time there's, there's some kind of Twitter or sound or something on my, the mom's phone, is that dad? Is that dad? And the world right now, this planet right now, 
is standing on its tiptoes and it's looking and waiting eagerly for something. Now you would think the Apostle Paul would say that for the creation in verse 19 waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. You would think that the world's waiting for the second coming, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But remember, this chapter is designed to give encouragement to suffering believers. Do you know what the world's looking for? I don't mean the media. I don't mean, I'm talking about that which God has created. It is eagerly waiting for and anticipating the glorious revealing of the children of God. Isn't that astounding? And I'm not taking shots at anybody, but if Al Gore would read this passage, if some of our dear friends, and we should be good stewards of our planet, but it's interesting, it's the world that has the, the doom and gloom, isn't it? But our text says, right now, every day in the present, the creation is standing on its tiptoes and it's looking for, it's got its binoculars, not those opera things, but the big ones you use when you're hunting. And it's got its binoculars out and it's looking for the revealing, the glorious revealing of the children of God. Absolutely astounding. Now, the world's very interesting, and again, we're not interested in dissing the world. But, you know, many would say the problem with the world is people. If we didn't have people, this planet would be fine. And, and if they're really kind of honest, they would say, you know, especially the problem with this planet is Christians. If we didn't have Christians, this would be fine. But the Bible says in this verse that the destiny of the planet is tied not to how well the human race recycles, not how well they can keep maniacs from, maniacs from pressing those buttons that could blow everything up. The destiny of this world is inseparably tied to the destiny of the saved. Isn't that wonderful? Now we could end right now but that'd be really embarrassing to Dave if I could end a sermon at 20 to 12. So we'll move on. We want to go from the present to the past. In verse 24, and these words for here are not golf terms. This is a word of explanation, an explanation that is going to explain the logic of what Paul is saying. Why is the world right now standing on its tippy toes looking for the glorious appearing of the children of God. Verse 20 tells us that something happened in the past. For the creation, Genesis 1, was created good. After every day, the Lord took inventory, and I say it reverently, he put a thumb up, good. And then at the end of the sixth day, what did he do? Two thumbs up, very good. Something happened in chapter 3. The first parents, your first parents, my first parents, made a decision that would radically alter 
the history of every human being that will ever come into this planet. They decided that they were wiser than God, that they knew better than God, that they and not God will determine what is right and what is wrong. Fortunately, we learned that lesson and we don't do that anymore, do we? <laughs> Isn't it astounding? I, I'm, I'm so arrogant now, I will decide who's going to be born and who won't be. In our country, at least, you can decide now when you want to die. I can even decide if I want to be a man or a woman, or both or some or whatever it might be. <laughs> and, and, and we're a culture that is constantly saying to God, you know, Adam was right. You're out to ruin the fun. God, you're incredibly insecure. The problem with you, God, is you've got this massive ego that needs to be stroked. No, the problem with God is that he actually loves people and he cares about people and he knows what's best for people. And he says, you can eat this, but you can't eat that. And Adam and Eve said, well, I don't think so. Well, our text says something happened in the past to this planet, to the creation. The creation, in verse 20, was subjected to futility. Anybody here ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Yeah, a few people. And what's the text of the sermon of Ecclesiastes? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Now, we might think of vanity as kind of a fancy dresser with a mirror, but vanity means in absolute in vain. It, it's the same Hebrew word for able, havel. It's just a, 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 a little bit of steam coming out of the tea kettle. It's just blowing your breath on a cold winter's day, and it appears and it disappears. And, and you could say futility, futility, frustration, frustration. Now, the creation was subjected to frustration, and it, to put it into the king's English now, rather than the queen's English, what it means is that God deliberately made this planet so that it won't work like it should. It was designed to bring unspeakable good to people. It was designed to bring unending glory to God. And God touched it with futility. Oh, we still have crops. We still have all kinds of things. But have you noticed as soon as you buy that new car, what are you doing for the next 10 years besides paying for it? You're, you're, you're trying to keep it from feeling the effects of living in a fallen, cursed world. You have to wash it. You have to vacuum it. You have to keep the rust off it. You have to do this. You have to do, and that's just one thing. Uh, in, in our paper in Hamilton on Saturdays, they, they have a section, they have a big section on obituaries, but they also have a section on, you know, 50th anniversaries. Uh, that section's getting smaller and smaller, by the way. People who have actually stayed married for 50 years, and what they'll do is they'll put a picture of these adorable creatures on their wedding day, and then a picture of them now. 
When you look at the now, you wonder why she ever even looked at the guy. But when you see the before picture, you say, yeah, he wasn't bad. Something's radically wrong with this world. And our world is trying to figure out what's radically wrong with this world. And again, there's nothing they can do about it because it's been divinely touched by God so that God has made this world to not work, to subject it to frustration and futility and vanity. And we've lived with that ever since. Now notice it was subjection, obviously in judgment, but it was subjection in hope. Can you imagine if God left the world after the fall like it was in Genesis 1 and 2? Who'd ever come to Christ? Even with the mess, who comes to Christ? Can you imagine if everywhere was Hawaii minus the volcano? And God subjected this thing in hope. So we have the present, the creation standing on its tiptoes. We have the past. Something radically happened with our environment, with this world, with this creation. And that sweet little girl in Europe needs to read this, these verses too. But there's a future. Look what it says. In verse 21, so that the intention is that in order that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and corruption and obtain freedom. There's a future for this planet. One of my favorite hymns is Abide With Me, a great hymn. One of the verses says, change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Our brother prayed this morning, there are people here who are not here, who had been here for years. They're in glory. Others are in sick places. Most of us have aches and pains and things and we're grateful to God, but we know that this is just wearing down, isn't it? But there's a future for this planet. And it is that in the future, two things will happen to this planet. First of all, it will be set free from its bondage to corruption or, or decay. Now, if you ever, I like apples. If you ever get an apple, big, juicy, delicious, you cut her in half, you put half on the counter, and you take half, and you start eating it. And you come back a half hour later, and if your brother hasn't got the other half, what do you notice about the half on the counter? It was pristine white and firm, and now it's beginning to decay so quickly. And it's true with anything, isn't it? And this whole world is subject to breaking down, to not working, to, to going to the lowest denominator. And God intended that on purpose. But in the future, not only will there be deliverance from, but there will be liberation too. 
Now, you, you would think again that Paul would say in verse 21, in order that the creation itself might obtain the freedom of the glory of the original creation. God will reverse the whole thing, put us back in Genesis 1 and 2. That isn't what it says. The glory that the earth, the planet, is looking forward to is the glory of the children of God. Isn't that astounding? Absolutely astounding. Do you see again, Paul is tying the ultimate destiny of this planet and this universe with the ultimate destiny of the children of God. I'm destined for glory. In Romans later on in chapter 8, what does it say? Those that God foreknew, he predestinated, and those that he, those that he, those that he glorified. The very thing that God is not going to share with anybody, he's going to share with his children. And the glory that is mine in the future is also the glory of this planet. Absolutely astounding, isn't it? We wouldn't even believe this stuff except it's in the Bible. That brings us back to the present in verse 22. For we know. Now, in Romans chapter 8 and in much of Romans, when it says, for we know, or you know, Paul is not saying, we've put a bunch of intelligent people, we got Carson and Froze and Packer, and, and these guys put their heads together. Well, if we did that, we wouldn't come up with much. When the Bible says, for we know, it is stressing, we know this only because God has revealed it. We'd never figure this out. You could put all the brainiacs that ever lived, Augustine, the whole bunch of them, Calvin, Luther, everybody, they had never come up with this. This has been divinely revealed. And not so that we can win Bible trivia pursuit, but so that we can persevere, so that we can press on, so they, we can say, well, it is worth living another day for Jesus. It is worth getting your legs out of bed. It is worth, you know, you feel like the Tin Man and the Wizard of Oz sometimes. But, oh, there's glory to come. Glory that's unspeakable. Glory that's unbelievable. Glory that is the very destination of the creation itself. So, if you stayed with me, we did the present, tiptoes, looking. We did the past, subjected to futility, this has been made to not work. The future, that the planet's glory is tied up with the glory of the redeemed children of God. Absolutely exciting, isn't it? And now we're back to the present because you see, that's where I live. That's where you live, the present. Because what he wants me to do is right now in the present, persevere. Now, future glory is to be the thing that motivates me and gets me up every day and fills me with praise. And, you know, when I arise, the first thing I want to think about is Jesus. Now, look what he says. For we know in verse 22 that the whole earth, the whole creation, this whole planet, minus the people, has been groaning 
until now. Now, I've had the privilege of being a pastor for over 40 years, and there are two kind of groanings. I've been to both. There's the groaning of the dying, and I've sat there at the bedside, and breath is harder and harder, and then there's even a death rattle. If you listen to our culture, they say, this planet's on its deathbed. And if we don't do something quick, not telling us that there's no, nothing we can do about this planet, just like there's nothing that we can do about our sin. This is God's move. But there's another kind of groaning. I've been there four times with Marlene and a few times, I'm not a free kind of pastor, but I was asked to come in a couple of times. There's the groaning of delivery. I, I've been in the delivery room. And, and Paul says here in verse 22, for we know because God has divinely revealed it to us, not because we figured it out, but we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's an astounding statement. That this isn't moving to a cataclysmic when <laughs> it's over. It, it, it's moving towards something that is going to be even greater and more magnificent than Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's hard to believe, isn't it? You see, every time you hear the news, you should be listening for contractions. You should be watching for groanings. Now, we don't delight in earthquakes. We don't delight in volcanoes or tsunamis or tornadoes or hurricanes or anything. But all of those things are reminding us, listen, it's coming. It's coming soon to a planet that you're living on. And oh, people need to flee from the wrath to come. You may be a young person here this morning, and you know, it's not easy growing up in a Christian home. Because it's easy to think you're not as bad as you really are. It's easy to think that because I come to church, because I'm this, I might be a deacon or an elder or a Sunday school teacher. I mean, but there's only one thing that will save me from the wrath to come, and that's Jesus Christ. And there, there's no right church to belong to that will get you saved. There's no right thing to do. You come out, as I said, with your hands up, and you say, I surrender. I've got nothing going for me. I was saved at 17. You know what God's been doing, me, doing to me for the last 56 years? He's been showing me why I needed to be saved at 17. I was a pretty good kid. <laughs> and then I actually started reading the Bible. And I went to Bible college, went to seminary, went to be a pastor. And you would think, wow, that sounds pretty. No, it isn't. 
because you know what God's been doing for the last 50 something years saying Don do you see why you had to be saved do you see why you had to be saved you see this word goes and it flashlights with a high beam into the recesses of my heart and my mind I thought I was a really patient guy and then I got married and I adjusted to that and then we had kids and now we got grandkids and I thought I was a pretty patient guy when I was still able to walk pretty good. And now, you know, I can't even tie my own shoes. And that's just one thing. All of the things in your heart and how quickly I would accuse the Lord of not loving me, of not being fair. Look at all I've done for him. And he can't even make a couple of hips work. And he says, oh, Don, don't you see what a rebel you are? And don't you see that you're only in this because of grace? You're, you're 40, 50 years in the ministry. In that sense, just expose how sinful you really are. Now, we don't despair because now I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for Eternity. Can you imagine that Jesus Christ wants to hang with me for all eternity? It won't be like one of those meet and greets. When I was a kid, the Detroit Red Wings used to come to Windsor, and we'd line up, and we'd bring our autograph book, and you had like 23 seconds with Gordy Howe and 22 seconds with Terry Sawcheck and that. And move it along, kid, move it along, because there's a bunch. And heaven won't be like that. We won't have a quick handshake. And then we'll be off sipping punch somewhere and saying, wow, he's pretty neat, isn't he? Isn't it awesome? But for all eternity, I will share in the glory of Jesus Christ. And my planet tells me every day that that is true. Every day. I know they always pick pretty girls. I don't know why to do the weather. Maybe because often the weather isn't that good to look at but for the believer we begin to see things differently we say isn't this amazing that God has built into the very creation itself the anticipation of the future glory of the children of God we don't look very glorious this morning do we that's okay because you see our life is hid with Christ and when he appears then it will appear what's really true about us C.S. Lewis said, if you really knew the glory of every Christian, every time you met a believer, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship them. Now, he's not encouraging us to worship other Christians, but what he was saying is, oh, there's something unspeakable glory, glorious about a Christian. That's why you love the people of God. And that's why you don't first see the sins. You first see the grace. And grace is the root and glory is the fruit and the argument of the book of Romans is that God's never started a fight he can't finish I'm going to ask our brothers and sisters to come and lead us in a response to his word and may we leave with hope and with joy and perseverance because even this planet says you're going to make it <laughs>